Well, as you can see from your bulletin, we're going to be in uh, 1 John chapter 1 this morning. And in case you're here for the first time, my name is Brett, one of the pastor's elders here at Fellowship Bible Church. Well, in 1984, a movie starring Robert Redford, Glenn Close, Robert Duvall, and Kim Basinger was released to the public, an instant American classic, in my opinion. The main character, played by Redford, his name is Roy Hobbs, and the name of the movie is called The Natural. Perhaps some of you have seen it. Hobbs, who learns the game of baseball from his father, is a bright, young, and very very talented left-handed pitcher. And at the young age of 19, he's off to try out for the infamous and notorious Chicago Cubs. Before trying out for the team, Hobbs encounters an unexpected tragedy. He suffers a gunshot wound in the abdomen by a mysterious woman that he meets on the train to Chicago. It was later determined that this woman was intentionally targeting top talented athletes for some unknown reason. Well, as you can probably imagine, his baseball career was sidetracked. 16 years later, at the ripe age of 35, Hobbs makes his way to the big leagues by earning a spot as an outfielder for the shameful New York Knights. Now, if you've seen the movie, you know that Hobbs, as an adolescent, he makes a wooden bat from an oak tree that was struck by lightning on his parents' farm. On the barrel of the bat, he carves a lightning bolt and the word Wonder Boy. It turns out that Hobbs, a middle-aged rookie, he is a hitting sensation. Whatever he desires to hit, he hits singles, doubles, triples, and and even towering home runs. As a result, the New York Knights, they catch fire. They go on a tremendous winning streak, climbing themselves out of last place in the division to first place. However, during this rise to first place, Hobbs, he suffers a terrible, terrible slump. He completely loses his swing, and he fails to make any sort of contact with the baseball whatsoever. And so during this slump, his batting average is plummeting faster than a speeding bullet. And Hobbs, throughout the the slump, he is romantically involved with a woman who consistently and habitually dresses in black. Now, the movie suggests that the woman dressed in black emits or radiates some sort of negativity or bad karma, so much so that it affects Hobbs' ability to hit home runs or any type of base hit, for that matter. And again, if you're familiar with the movie, then you know that during a particular game against the Cubs at the legendary Wrigley Field, a woman played by Glenn Close. She's dressed in white, and she's sitting in the stands about a dozen rows up from the third base line. And with the sunlight from the setting sun shining brightly behind her, she stands up when Hobbs is at the plate. And in this particular scene, he steps out of the batter box after a swing and a miss, and it seems likely that he is in for another strikeout. But as he attempts to regain his focus, he notices the woman dressed in white standing alone up in the stands. 
And in that moment, it's, it's as if Hobbes supernaturally regains his strength, his determination, and his focus. For on the next pitch, he connects and drives the baseball so perfectly that it smashes into the stadium clock located on the stadium scoreboard in deep center field. So why use this illustration for our time together? Perhaps you're thinking, what's the point? Well, young men, single young men, don't date a young lady who habitually and consistently dresses in black, right? That's, yeah. For that's going to mess up your game, whatever game that is. No, that is not the point, okay? That's not the point. Uh, The point is the director's use of colors throughout the movie. As I mentioned earlier, the woman dressed in black is symbolic for that which is negative or unrighteous or impure or deceptive. And the woman dressed in white, by the way, there is a celebration, a day when women particularly um, dress in white. And that, of course, is on their wedding day, right? Well, that's symbolic for that which is positive or righteous or pure or that which is true. And in our text this morning, we see another use of symbolism by the Apostle John. He uses light and darkness to instruct us about who God is and how we should live or walk in consideration of who he is. So our main idea this morning is this. It's on the back of your bulletin if you'd like to follow along there. Main idea is this. If believers claim to have fellowship with God, then we must walk in the light as he is in the light. And we're going to see four truths from our text this morning. Number one, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Number two, professing believers in the Lord Jesus Christ must walk in the light as God is in the light. Number three, believers must recognize their own sin struggles and then seek to confess their sins to God. And number four, if a person claims to have not engaged in the practice of sin, then the truth of God does not reside in him or her. So if you've not done so already, please turn to 1 John chapter 1. And if you're able to, please stand for the reading of God's word. You may follow along as I read aloud verses, I'm going to read 1 through 10 of chapter 1. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. The Apostle John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes in beginning verse 1 of chapter 1. That which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message we have heard from Him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. 
But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. You may be seated. It is the reading of God's word this morning. May that be a blessing and a joy to your hearts this morning. Please join me in prayer. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for our time together to gather together as brothers and sisters in Christ to, to praise and to exalt your glorious name, Lord. Lord, help us to be mindful this morning of the work that you have accomplished through the life, the death, the resurrection of Christ. Lord, settle our hearts on your word. May we cherish your word, your sovereignty, Lord. Help us to think about your attributes. You are holy, you are just, you are righteous. And what that indicates or what that implies for how we live our lives, Lord, help us to be mindful of those truths this morning. Lord, we thank you for the sufficient word of God, the inerrant word of God, the authoritative word of God. May it be our guide for every encounter, every situation, every circumstance that we face. Help us to soak it up in our hearts and our minds, to meditate on it, to ponder it, to reflect on it, so that we can respond to life's difficulties in faithfulness and obedience for your glory and for the good of others. I pray, Lord, this morning that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my Redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In our first four verses of this chapter, we see that John and other eyewitnesses testify to the glorious reality of the eternal Son of God stepping down from His heavenly throne by taking on human flesh. We call that the incarnation. The word of life, that which was with the Father from the pre-dawn of time, has been revealed or manifested to John and the other apostles in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. We also see and observe in the beginning verses of chapter 1 that John and the apostles, in some sense, invite their audience to have fellowship with them, as they too have fellowship with God the Father and God the Son. And in a sense, John is saying, look, if you receive our teaching, that's apostolic teaching, if you receive our teaching, then you are in fact receiving and accepting the teaching of Christ. And if you receive the teaching of Christ, then you have fellowship with God the Father. And in a very similar fashion, Jesus says in the Gospel of John, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, that's Christ, and whoever receives Jesus receives the one who sent me, that is God the Father. And so it's a package deal type of thing. If you receive the Son, then you get the Father. If you reject the Son, then you do not get the Father. So in verse 5 of our text this morning, John informs his audience of the message that 
Him and the other apostles have heard from the eternal Son of God, the Lord Jesus. And this message that Jesus taught to his followers and the message that John is now proclaiming to us and his audience is that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. So what does this mean when John writes, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all? Well, as I mentioned in our opening few minutes, the Apostle John here is using symbolism to describe the character and nature of who God is. But before we understand the meaning behind the truth claim, God is light, let, us, let me first state what John is not claiming. Okay, He's not saying that the divine essence of God is somehow contained within the light particles or photons that are moving about this room. If that were true, then we dive into the realm of pantheism, which claims that a tree is God, or that a rock is God, or that a door is God, or that an animal is God. Now, we must remember, as we have learned in our Trinity class on Sunday mornings, that God is not composed of parts. We call that divine simplicity. Right? For if God were composed of parts, then He can be molded. He can be manipulated. And as a result, he fails to be a timeless and matchless God. So to say that God is light is to say that God is pure. God is true. God is holy. God is righteous. God is morally perfect. Psalm 119, 137 says, Righteous are you, O Lord, and right are your rules. Isaiah 57, verse 15, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. Daniel writes in chapter 7 of the book of Daniel that the ancient of days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow. There's another example of the use of color or imagery. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. The symbolic indication of the white clothing indicates that God is unstained from that which is evil, impure, or unrighteous. The use of of the color white emphasizes the truth that God is pure. God is holy. God is morally perfect, unstained from any sort of corruption or evil. This truth claim that God is light, it's absolute, it is certain, it is true and solid and trustworthy in every place, every time, and in every culture. And since God is light, no darkness resides in Him. The darkness is symbolic for that which is evil, unrighteous, wicked, impure, or sinful. And so in the opening chapters of John, we see uh, additional examples of John's uh, use of the light-darkness distinction. Actually, in the opening chapters of the Gospel of John, John chapter 1, uh, verse 5, he writes, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. In John chapter 3, verse 19, God says, and this is the judgment, The light, the Lord Jesus, has come into the world, and people loved the darkness Sin, unrighteousness, impurity, rather than the light, because their works were evil. 
And of course, we're familiar with John chapter 8, verse 12. Jesus states, I am the light of the world. Whoever, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So not only does the statement, God is light, indicate the character and nature of God, it also takes on a sense of that which has been revealed, which certainly makes sense in view of the first four verses of chapter 1. The word of life, that which was with the Father, from the beginning, before the foundation of the universe, the eternal Son of God revealed, manifested to sinful mankind in order to be the Savior of sinful mankind. One commentary uh, notes that light provides illumination in dark places and is an appropriate symbol for the way in which God reveals himself to men to show them how to live. Psalm 119, verse 105, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. The author of Hebrews writes, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus is the divine radiance, the luminosity or the intrinsic brightness of the glory of God revealed to his people. The true light being revealed to a dark, broken fallen, sinful world. God is holy. God is righteous. God is morally perfect. For He is without sin. He is without evil, deceit, falsehood, darkness. For these things have no residency in His character and nature. The simple truth regarding the character of God and the revelation of God in the person of Christ is foundational for John's ethical and moral exhortations, not only in the following verses, in verses 5 through 10, but also throughout the remainder of his letter. So truth number one, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. <clears throat> so picking up the text in verses 6 and 7, If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And this leads us to our second truth this uh, this morning. Professing believers in the Lord Jesus Christ must walk in the light as God is in the light. And really, this truth echoes our main idea this morning. If believers claim to have fellowship with God, then we must walk in the light as he is in the light. In verse 6, John is simply stating that if a person claims to have fellowship with God and yet lives a life that is characterized by the consistent and habitual practice of sin, lawlessness, deceit, impurity, and unrighteousness, well, then that individual does not have fellowship with God. John says essentially that this individual is a liar. To verbally claim or profess that you have an association or a fellowship with God the Father, while at the same time your conduct or character or morality reveals that you practice sin, disobedience, and wickedness, well, that's a straight-up lie, John says. The two are inconsistent with one another, 
They are in complete contradiction. If a person claims to have fellowship with God, and yet his or her actions and behavior communicate something entirely different, well, we would conclude that this particular individual is a liar, perhaps, or even a hypocrite. And if you look up hypocrisy in the dictionary, this is what you're going to find. The practice of claiming to have moral standards or beliefs to which one's own behavior does not conform. And what is the moral standard or belief that John is communicating to his audience? The moral standard is is this, that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. And so if your profession is not consistent with your lifestyle, your choices, actions, speech, conduct, then you are a liar. Our morality, our external conduct must be consistent with our claim or our profession of faith. What sort of association or fellowship can you claim to have with God if you live in darkness? What sort of fellowship can there be between sin and righteousness? The answer is none. There is no fellowship with God if a person walks or lives in habitual and consistent darkness. For God is pure. God is holy. God is righteous. Again, Jesus states in the Gospel of John, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. In other words, whoever follows after the Lord Jesus Christ will walk or live in the true light, the light of the world. So as professing believers, we must walk or live in righteousness, purity, godliness, and holiness. Our character, our morality must be consistent with the character and morality of God. Professing believers in the Lord Jesus Christ must walk in the light as God is in the light. John also states at the end of verse 6 that the person who claims to have fellowship with God while living in darkness is not only one who lies, but also one who does not practice the truth. What truth is John referring to? It's the truth the, the truth that which was from the beginning and that which was revealed or manifested to the apostles in the person of Christ. Jesus states, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So to practice the truth is to walk or live in the light. To walk or live in the light is to practice the truth. John writes in chapter 2 of this letter, if anyone, verse 6 of chapter 2, if anyone claims to abide in Jesus Christ, then we must walk or live in the same way in which he lived or walked. God is the standard of our morality and our ethics. If we are walking in darkness, we do not practice the truth. In fact, we are practicing lawlessness. An individual cannot walk in darkness and at the same time practice the truth. Again, our main idea this morning is that professing believers in the Lord Jesus Christ must walk in the light as God is in the light. 
Verse 7, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus' son cleanses us from all sin. In verse 7, we see two results or consequences for walking in the light. We know that walking in the light implies that we are practicing righteousness or obedience. God himself is in the light because he only acts according to his character and nature. Since God is holy, just, and righteous, his ways, his words, his actions, they are completely and wholly consistent with his character and nature. The author of Hebrews writes that it is impossible for God to lie. To do so would be contrary to his nature. So we see two consequences for walking in the light. First, we have fellowship with one another. Now, you would think that John would say that, we're, that if we are walking in the light, we would have fellowship with God in consideration of what was stated in verse 6. And this is most certainly true for the professing born-again believer who practices righteousness. Indeed, they have fellowship or a commonality with God. But I think John is likely addressing some falsehoods or I think even false teachers in and through these verses. It seems likely that some individuals were claiming that you could walk in darkness and as a result maintain fellowship not only with God, but with also with those within the church. John is in, he's in, but John is in fact saying that if you walk in darkness consistently, and habitually, then you cannot have fellowship with God. And you cannot have fellowship or an association with other genuine believers within the church. For what sort of shared commonality, what sort of shared purpose does walking in the light and walking in the darkness have? There is no shared commonness or or, or shared purpose. What sort of commonality or fellowship can you have between a person who practices habitual sin with a person who practices righteousness and purity? As I said, there is no shared goal or shared purpose. And so as believers walk in the light, as God is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another. We have a shared goal as brothers and sisters in Christ who are striving to put on the Lord Jesus Christ, who are striving to put sin to death, who are striving to put on holiness, righteousness, and obedience. We have a shared goal. We have a shared mission. And later on in this letter, John talks about that Jesus Christ is righteous. And if he is righteous, then we must be practicing righteousness as we await his return. For we are, the bride, uh, we are waiting the, for the return of the bridegroom, but we are his bride. And so we put on clothes of white, holiness, righteousness, purity. So we must seek to walk in the light as God is in the light. Think about the testimony that Fellowship Bible Church would have if the people within this neighborhood knew 
that that's a church where the people that go to that church, they put on righteousness and purity and holiness. What sort of testimony do you think we would have for the glory of God and for the good of others if people within this neighborhood said, wow, that church, Fellowship Bible Church, those people, they put on righteousness and holiness and purity. They put on the Lord Jesus Christ. The second result of walking in the light is that the blood of Jesus' Son cleanses us from all sin. We need to remember that at the moment of our conversion, the moment in which we turned from our sin and placed our faith and trust in the personal work of Christ, we were and are justified. Justification simply means that we are now declared righteous. We are declared righteous because the righteousness of Christ has been credited to our account. God views us now, after our conversion, as if we have never sinned and and as if we have perfectly obeyed. We also need to be reminded that all our past, present, and future sins have been paid for by the blood of Christ. In Ephesians, Paul writes, In Christ we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. In Colossians, Paul writes, He, God, has delivered us, rescued us from the domain of darkness, and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. And so at our conversion, there is a removal of our sins, a cancellation of all of our past, present, and future sins. But we know that we have not been fully glorified, and we live with the presence of sin in our lives. In other words, we have been rescued from the power and penalty of sin, but we still deal with the presence of sin in our lives. And so John seems to direct our attention to the idea of progressive sanctification. And this simply means that we are in the process of becoming more and more like Christ. And so John is essentially saying that if we continue to practice consistently and habitually obedience, righteousness, and purity, and of course we don't do this perfectly, but if we continue to strive to walk to live in righteousness, obeying the commands of God, then the blood of Christ cleanses us, purifies us from all sin, sanctifying us, setting us apart as children of the light. This is not some sort of works-based salvation that John is referring to. He's simply speaking to the reality of the believer's walk with the Lord in a fallen, broken, sinful world. If we think about our baptism, if you have participated in believer's baptism, Paul says in Romans chapter 6 that we died with Christ in our baptism in order that we too would walk in a newness of life. He goes on to write that our old self was crucified with Christ in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. 
We have been set free from sin, so we must also consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. As we seek to put put to death sinful deeds of the body, and as we are striving and working towards holiness, righteousness, and purity in and through the power of the Holy Spirit, we have fellowship with one another. We have a shared commonality. We have a shared purpose. And the blood of Jesus purifies us or cleanses us from all sin. It is a cooperative effort between the believer and the indwelling power of the Spirit of God to put to death the sinful motives and deeds of the flesh. And we do this together. The Christian life was never intended to be lived or played out in isolation. All of us deal with sin to some degree or another. And we struggle with sin from time to time. But we can have confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ who purifies us and cleanses us from all sins. And we can have hope and trust and confidence that our brothers and sisters in Christ are praying for us praying for one another that we would put on robes of white, robes of righteousness as we await his glorious return. Let's look at verses 8 and 9. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess Our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There it is again, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Truth number three, believers must recognize their own sin struggles and seek to confess their sins to God. In verse eight, John again seems to be addressing certain individuals who are claiming that they are without sin. And it may be that these individuals are claiming to be without a sin nature. We know that the Bible states that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. We know the Bible teaches us that we are sinners by nature and by choice. And if you claim to be without a sin nature, then you are deceived. If you claim to be without a sin nature, then your profession is a good indicator that you have not received or trusted in the apostolic teaching or the teaching of Christ. At the moment of our conversion, we are given a new identity or a new nature. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And even though we have a new nature, the old nature has not been completely eradicated. We still live in the flesh. Our bodies still break down. Our flesh is still stained with sin. And so we experience the tension of the old nature versus the new nature. We experience the tension between the flesh and the Spirit. There's a battle or a tension that we face 
each and every day. And Paul verifies this in Galatians uh, chapter 5. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. And so we know this. We experience this tug of war battle going on between the flesh, which has not been fully glorified. But because of our new nature and our new identity, we have the capacity, we have the power because of the Holy Spirit who dwells inside of us to resist the sinful flesh. And so that's why we see the commands in Colossians 3 and Ephesians chapter 4 to put to death what is earthly in you. Paul states in Colossians 3, put to death sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. And all of these things are associated with living in the darkness. In these you too once walk, Paul states, when you were living or walking in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So how can the new self be renewed after the image of God? Well, we walk in the light as he is in the light. And how can we practice or strive to walk in the light? Well, I think we need to recognize our sin struggles, and then confess our sins to God. Instead of claiming that we are without sin, we need to seek to confess our sins. There is no shame in confession. It shows a reality. It shows a dependence upon the work of God to transform us, to mold us into the image of of Christ. We ought to confess our sins for he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We all struggle with sin to a certain degree in our thoughts and our motives and our actions. I sin against my wife. I sin against my children. So what do we do? We confess As David does in Psalm 32, he states, I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Another good psalm of confession is Psalm 51. If you're familiar with Psalm 51, David pens this psalm after he commits sin against Bathsheba and her husband. He writes in Psalm 51, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, I shall be whiter than snow. There's that imagery again. Create in me a clean heart, O God, David says, and renew a right spirit Within me. Sounds much like our text this morning. Christ is faithful. 
and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Proverbs 28, verse 13 says this about confession. Whoever conceals or covers his transgressions will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them. But he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Believers must recognize, we must recognize our own sin struggles and seek to confess our sins to God. If we do not confess our sins, if we conceal our sins, how are we to obtain mercy according to Proverbs 28, 13? If we do not confess our sins... Our fellowship with other believers, our shared commonality, our shared purpose, our shared goal breaks down. Our fellowship with other believers and with God is greatly hindered. I was reminded of what Peter states in 1 Peter chapter 3. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. I think Peter is saying that if husbands do not live with their wives in an understanding way, then their fellowship with God the Father is hindered. It's damaged. It's broken. For he is the one who answers our prayers. Husbands, be mindful of your actions toward your wives. Are you seeking to live with her in an understanding way? And when, husbands, you sin against your wife, are you quick? To confess your sins to God and to your wife? Do you recognize your sin? At our conversion, all of our past, present, and future sins are forgiven. This is sometimes referred to as positional forgiveness. But when we sin against one another or sin against God, the relationship is hindered until the relationship is restored or renewed. This is sometimes referred to as relational forgiveness. Now, we know this to be true in our relationships with our spouses and with our children. If a husband sins against his wife, the relationship is hindered until the husband seeks to amend or restore the relationship. And how do we do that? Well, we confess our sin and we ask for forgiveness for that specific sin. If a teenager sins against his or her parents, the relationship is hindered. It's damaged. It's broken. Until the believing teenager seeks to restore the relationship through confession, humility, 
and for asking for forgiveness. Teenagers, as a reminder, you sin against your parents. That is a sin against God. We must seek to confess our sins to God. For any horizontal sin committed against others is also a vertical sin against God. And once we do, we can be confident and sure that Christ is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness as he works to mold and shape us into the image of Christ. We believers, we professing believers in the Lord Jesus Christ must recognize our sin struggles and seek to confess our sins to God. Verse 10. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Truth number four. If a person claims to have not engaged in the practice of sin, the truth then the truth of God does not reside in him or her. In other words, if a person claims to not have sinned in their motives, their thoughts, their external conduct, then this person makes God a liar. And his word is, or his truth is not in them. To deny that you have not willfully sinned is to deny the revelation of the divine truth. To deny that you have committed Uh, committed an external behavior that is sinful is to deny the universal biblical truth that all have sinned by choice and by nature. First Kings chapter eight, verse 46, for there is no one who does not sin. Psalm 14, all have turned aside. There is none who does good, not even one. Perhaps you are here this morning and you may be wondering, well, what is sin? It's an important question. I can remember the days leading before my profession of faith, my conversion. I asked that simple question. What is sin? I didn't really have a good idea of what sin was. According to the Westminster Shorter Catechism, sin is any thought, word, or deed that breaks God's law by omission or commission. Sin is any thought, word, or deed that breaks God's law by omission or commission. What is the sin of omission? Well, it's not doing what God requires. What is the sin of commission? Doing something that God forbids and what does every sin deserve doesn't matter if you have broken one of the ten commandments or you have broken all ten of them every sin is a infinite offense against an infinite eternal God and it deserves his wrath If you have never turned from your sin and placed your faith and trust in Christ for salvation, then the wrath of God remains on your head. John chapter 3, 
Verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. That's the good news. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And if you have never turned from your sin, if you have never repented of your sin and placed your faith, your trust in Christ for salvation, you are living in the darkness. And since you are walking in the dark, you have no fellowship, no association with God the Father. The Bible says you are a child of wrath. Living or walking in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind since you are acting and doing according to your sinful nature. That's Ephesians 2. And John says it later on in this letter. He makes two distinctions. Children of the devil and the children of God. If you have never made a profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you need to consider your sin against a holy, just, and righteous God. Turn from your sin. Place your faith and trust in the light of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ. For He suffered the punishment you deserve. And because of His life, death, and resurrection, you can have eternal life. You can be saved from the wrath of God. 1 John chapter 5, 11-12. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you are a non-believer here this morning, consider these biblical truths. If you have questions or concerns about the universal call to repent and believe in the gospel, please come talk to a trusted Christian friend. Come talk to me or Pastor Steve or Pastor Mike at the close of our time together. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we need to seek to walk in purity and righteousness just as God is holy, pure, and righteous. For he is light, and in them there is no darkness. We are commanded to be the salt and the light of the world. How are you doing in practicing righteousness and good works within your homes, within your neighborhoods, within your workplaces, and within your local church? We are commanded to bear fruit. For the visible fruit that is produced in our lives is the evidence. It's the evidence of the inward transformation that God accomplished at the moment of our conversion. And that's really what John is getting at throughout these verses and throughout his chapter, or throughout the book. We must be a people who bear fruit. We must seek to practice good works and to bear fruit from a redeemed heart and from a new identity in Christ for the good of others and for the glory of God. We also must seek to recognize our own sin struggles, our sins in thought, our sins in attitudes, our sins in deeds and conduct. And then we seek to confess our sins to God, to restore and renew our relationship with him and with others. 
For we have this great truth in our text this morning. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But I, I wonder, do we disdain our sin? Do we have a proper perspective of sin in our life? How is your confession lately? When was the last time you got down on your knees in humility and in dependence upon the Lord God, the triune God, and confessed your sins to Him? Are you quick to recognize when you've sinned against a spouse or a family member or a child? Do you go to that person whom you've sinned against and ask verbally for he or she to forgive you? So that the relationship can be restored? Are we quick to confess idols of the heart? Idols of comfort, idols of control, idols of pleasure. If you're like me, you struggle with these idols. And in our confession of sin, how are we doing in forsaking our sin? Repentance, turning from sin is not a one-time deal at the moment of our conversion. We must be in the practice of turning from sin, as Paul discusses in Ephesians 4 and Colossians 3. And yes, putting off sin, is, it's, it's tough work. It is hard work. But it's a necessary work. As we recognize our humble dependence upon the Spirit to aid us, and turning from sin and making no provision for the flesh. If we desire change, biblical change, we need to confess and forsake our sins. We need to activate and exercise our faith, our trust, our confidence in the character and nature of God. We remind ourselves of gospel truths each and every day. We ponder and meditate in our hearts gospel truths. We reflect on the glorious work that God has accomplished for us in the life, the death, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we will do that here in just a moment when we practice and partake in the Lord's table. If we claim to have fellowship with God, we walk in the light as He is in the light. And when we do sin, we can be assured that Jesus Christ, our Advocate, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us, to wash us, to purify us from all unrighteousness. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for our time together. We thank you for the richness of your word. Your authoritative, inspired, sufficient, inerrant word, Lord. Lord, we do live with the reality of sin in our lives. And Lord, we need your help. We need strength and power through the Holy Spirit who dwells inside of us to to put off sin. To put it to death. And Lord, help us to put on compassion and kindness and gentleness and love so that your name is lifted up and glorified. 
Help us to rest in these truths this morning. Lord, yes, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, when we do sin, help us to be quick to confess and to forsake sin, Lord God, to turn from it. This is just not a one-time event at our conversion. It is a necessary work each and every day of our lives. Lord, we need your help. We need help and support from other believers, other brothers and sisters in Christ. So, Lord, help us to be committed in our pursuit of walking in the light as you are in the light, so that your name is lifted up and glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.